Welcome to the future of figure skating. My name is Anna Keller. There's been a lot of discussion lately about stress fractures as skaters like Rika Kihiro, Wakaba Fuchi, and Yuma Kagiyama have struggled with that injury this season. On today's episode, I'll be focusing on biomechanical research and how that can help prevent these kinds of overuse injuries in athletes. My guest, Dr. Deborah King, is professor and grad chair in exercise science and athletic training at Ithaca College in New York State. Dr. King has three decades of experience working with figure skaters, including in partnership with the U.S. Olympic Training Center. Her research focuses on measuring the forces involved in jump landings in order to better understand the impact on bones and joints. Professor King, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. First off, I was hoping you could give a introduction to what biomechanics is as a field of study and what that means in the context of figure skating. Sure, I'd be happy to. So biomechanics is actually a really large field of study. I'm specifically in more human movement biomechanics. So I'm studying the motion of people and the forces that act on and within people as they do movement skills. Um, that could be sort of more activities of daily living or sports. But there are people in biomechanics who are studying not human movement. So they could be studying insects or horses or dog gait, or people could actually be in the plant kingdom studying plant biomechanics. And there could be people who are working with humans in biomechanics, but at a more micro level, looking at cellular biomechanics, whether it's muscle cells or cartilage cells and things like that. So it's really broad. So I'm human movement biomechanics. I did a presentation for my, I think, ninth grade science class about the physics of figure skating and trying to understand what some of the forces are that impact skaters and immediately was way above the level that I um, had the physics to understand. But when you're looking at the mechanics of movement for skaters, what are some of the elements that you particularly focus on and some of the forces that are working on skaters' bodies? Yeah, so in figure skating, I've mostly looked at the um, singles or pair skaters, looking at the jumps or throws, and really looking at it from a two-pronged approach. One would be sort of from the performance side. So we're looking more at how they're able to generate forces to get the either energy or the velocity to get up in the air and do the rotations. But then there's also the landing side. So like once either if it's a throw or a jump, once the skater's in the air, they're going to have to land. And so then I'm looking more at the forces that are acting on the body and hopefully then how they're being absorbed as a person as landing so that they can ideally do lots of landings without getting so much force that they're getting overuse injuries. How much does the ice itself impact those forces? Sometimes you can have harder or softer ice and it can make a difference when you're performing those elements. Does it also have an impact at that level of the physics or is the difference small enough compared to other things that are happening? Oh, that's a great question. So to my knowledge, no one has actually documented how big the difference is, say, in the landing forces on different hardness of ice. It would not surprise me that it makes a difference. You see differences in people's biomechanics when they're landing in different surfaces or different footwear in other sports, whether it's just running on different surfaces or jumping on like an asphalt basketball court versus a wood indoors basketball court. Or if you think of playing tennis on grass versus clay versus hard court. So it's 
it's going to make a difference. The question is, is it how is it large enough that's really meaningful in terms of loading on the body? I don't know if we know the answer to that, but certainly I would wouldn't be surprised that it changes a little bit of the person's mechanics, as you see that in other sports. That when the surface changes, the person's actually mechanics in terms of maybe how much they're going to flex their ankle knee or hip or how much range of motion they move through when they land because if the ice is absorbing more force they might not use their body to absorb as much force um, I we just haven't documented how big that change is but it's, it's going to make some difference with the work that you're doing looking at biomechanics do you think that there are ways that we can be making skating safer or reducing injuries absolutely think there are things that could be done to try to reduce the risk of injury in skating. And I think those are going to fall into some different categories, particularly if we're talking more at the elite level versus if we're talking more at the recreational level, like sort of more learn to skate programs or recreational adult skating. That's probably not the level that you're interested in, but that's probably where we have more skaters. <laughs> so I mean, at that level, they actually are, you know, are going to have more problems with acute injuries. So from my falls, things like that. Some concussions are a really big concern. Broken wrists, uh, sprained ankles are really common. Actually, sprained ankles are pretty common across all levels of skating, but certainly people are going to fall. Because I mean, I think some equipment is probably easier to skate than others at skill level. But, you know, I don't know if at the recreational level, you know, concussions are sort of a big deal. Should people in learn to skate programs be offered to wear helmets if they aren't an accomplished skater, you know, that might be something to think about. And a lot of people are wearing helmets, you're more likely to wear one yourself, you know, if you're feeling it like a peer pressure thing. Um, at the elite level, the area that I think people in biomechanics and I'm more involved in, I wouldn't say more interested in, but more involved in are the overuse or repetitive use injuries coming from just doing the actual really complicated high level skills that they do over and over and over again and all the stress they put on the body. To reduce injury risk with that, I can think of sort of three things that could potentially impact that. One certainly would be thinking of training schedule and being fairly particular on when you're loading your body and having the rest and recovery. So you actually get positive benefits from the training effect and you don't just keep loading and loading and loading the structures and never having the positive adaptations that occur when you have the rest and recovery. And that's really working with a trainer or a coach who's skilled in laying out your training program. So you, you don't overtrain. Are there ways to measure the strain that's coming on bones? This season in particular, there's been a lot of attention to stress fractures because there are a number of athletes who are out for parter all of the season recovering from them. But before you have the stress fracture, can you tell you're getting into a danger zone? Training programming isn't necessarily my area of expertise, but in terms of the different ways that people do sort of look at where an athlete is in recovery to try to say like, do I need an easy day or not? And it's usually not looking at that specific of bone adaptations that are taking place. Looking more at markers usually that are much more easy to measure. Generally, people are perhaps doing some testing relating to like, say, how's your vertical jump? And if you are at a certain level of fatigue or not able to produce a certain amount of force or power, you probably have not recovered and you don't necessarily be training again. So it's looking at it a little more from a performance standpoint. So are you ready to take on the next training session because you aren't recovered from your first one? But I think something similar, if you're not probably ready to take on the training program from a performance standpoint, you're not ready to take on the training program. So your body needs more recovery. So I think monitoring that would probably, though I don't have the evidence for it yet, be helpful in terms of injury reduction as well. Um, I mean, certainly there are biomarkers that 
could be used to try to monitor for injuries, but that's going to be more invasive and more involved and takes some more expertise than looking at some, I think, somewhat of a format side. So I said, I know I said there were three things I could think about for injuries. Another one would be thinking about equipment. I mean, there's not that much equipment involved in figure skating, so it's pretty much going to be the boots. I discussed you don't have control over the ice. So, so I mean, boots, I think different people would probably respond to different boots in different ways. So some boots might allow you to have lower load go up through the body, through the leg than other boots. And I don't think it would necessarily be the same boot for every person, just like the same running shoes don't necessarily work the same way for every person. So that's one thing that can be looked at either without what is on the market or with manufacturers out there also just working on the boots that they have and offering different models. On the equipment piece, so would that be like looking at ways to add shock absorption or what elements of the boot would make a difference? Yeah, so there's, I mean, only so many elements of the boot, right? So there's the blade <laughs> and I guess there's the boot, but with the boot, I guess there's the sole of the boot and then pretty much the upper. So a boot doesn't want to have like a midsole because you don't want like a foamy, as you would in a running shoe, you don't want a foamy piece that's going to allow you to absorb a lot of energy because you need to be able to control the blade. So you don't need a soft, squishy thing that doesn't allow you to control the blade on the ice. You probably could do something with potentially with the design of the blade. I don't have it in my mind, but whether it's the material of the blade or the actual design of the blade, I don't know. I would say the material of the outsole, which is most boots I still see leather, but I do know there are some more composite plastic type outsoles out there. That would certainly make a difference in shock absorption. So playing with that. And then with the upper, it doesn't probably initially sound like you could play with the upper to change the sock absorption because you would probably want to think you want something between the bottom of your foot and the ice, but you could play with the upper in the terms of how much range of motion the upper part of the boot allows in the ankle in terms of pointing and flexing your toe. Because if you can point the toe a little more or flex your ankle a little more and get more range of motion, you can use your ankle to help absorb forces and then that would lower the loading on the body. So you actually could play with three parts of the boot. The piece about the ankles is interesting as someone who has had multiple sprained ankles when I switched my boot brand and suddenly realized that I had what felt like another inch worth of ankle mobility. It changed just about everything about how I felt. Oh, absolutely. If it's a lot, like like, you couldn't just necessarily do your skills in another boot like the next day. I mean, skaters already know that anyways, but a fairly drastic change can change the feel of the boot. So it's not just going to be like, oh, I can now absorb the landing forces to my ankle better, which might be true, but you have to actually be able to skate in them and do the trick. So it'd probably be something that's a little gradual adaptation and, you know, there'll be a little downturn in skating before you get back to where you are. So it's probably easier, I would guess, for someone who's learning, not as accomplished to make a change than an elite level skater because they might not have the time or the inclination unless they've just been racked with injuries and they really need to make a change because they're not able to skate right now <laughs> yeah it's, it would be a big deal because a little more plantiflexion dorsiflexion that changes a lot about your skating changing the upward also could affect your medial stability so your foot rolling inside and outside too so you'd have to get used to all that too it might need to strengthen your intrinsic foot muscles might need to strengthen the muscles around your ankle so there's a lot goes with it without a doubt Why do we see so many stress fractures? I mean, I may be asking you a medical question, but why is that such a common injury for skaters? 
I would say those of us who work with figure skating are sort of working with the assumption that, even though we haven't done a lot of measurements, that just the loading on the body in a lot of the different skating elements is pretty high. So if you think of your singles and pair skaters, particularly, um, when you're skating on ice, which is a hard surface, right? And that ice is put down on concrete, which is a hard surface, and you're skating at steel blade or metal blade, it might not be steel, which is very rigid. Generally, the bottom of the boot is a plastic composite or leather, which is very rigid. So none of those elements have any shock absorption. And then you have the upper part of the boot doesn't have a lot of give at the ankle. Different, as you noticed, different boots do have different amounts of giving them, but it's certainly not as much range of motion as if you're just wearing a pair of like basketball shoes or something like that. People and athletes do takeoffs and landings and running and that type of thing. They're using their foot motion and the ankle motion to generate a lot of power, but also absorb a lot of the force. And they're usually not on concrete, you know, that's not a typical playing surface. In skating, just by the design of the sport, you can't really use the foot and the ankle to absorb nearly as much as you normally do. So that's going to increase the magnitude of the force going up through the body and also potentially increase what we call the loading rate, which is more the quickness that the force is applied. Um, so it just puts a lot of load on the skeletal system. Probably each individual load is not enough to be dangerous, like it's going to break a bone necessarily if you come down, you know, without falling or something like that, just a normal pattern. Yeah. But just the repetitive loading over and over and over, doing hundreds of jumps, and then you have takeoffs and all the other skills you're doing, and you might practice twice a day, <laughs> you just get the accumulated load to the bone, which sort of, I want to say, weakens the bone. It lowers the threshold, which bone will start to have um, damage. It's called the failure strength of the bone that changes with all this repetitive loading. And then if you just go back and do it the next day, you haven't had like the positive adaptations of building up new bone necessarily yet. So you're loading again on what is already sort of a weakened bone and just get stress factors. And hopefully the person stopped like right when they start having pain. So they get time to heal and they don't have to take a super amount of long time off, but most athletes don't do that. Right. So you try to train through it. So then the stress factor actually becomes worse and then you have to take a longer time period off and it's a little vicious cycle. That's one of the areas where hopefully more education around this process to skaters and coaches might help. I mean, there's always time pressure on, on skaters, but that sense that a little more recovery time on the front end if you can prevent longer time off the ice later. Right. And I think that's hard. I think perhaps in sports which have thinking of collegiate sports and professional sports where there are de designated athletic trainers and team physicians that are touching base with the athlete every day are probably a little better at persuading the athletes and educating the athletes. Okay, we're going to take two days off now, but we'll have you ready for your game, you know, this coming weekend versus, you know, the athlete not mentioning that they have a pain and playing through it. And then they need to take off a month later on. I mean, I don't actually have the data on that, but when you just look at that, who's on injured reserve, when you, you know, watch professional sports and they're still out for this day, but they come back the weekend, there's whole teams of people assigned to keep these athletes at their top performance. And skaters don't necessarily have that at the back and call. So I, I think that's sort of a missing link if you're working at that elite level where someone is just there monitoring you. 
How does age and the development of the skeletal structure impact this? Are you at a higher risk or a lower risk when you're younger? Age absolutely makes a difference. Particularly younger skaters are going to go through growth spurts. So they're going to be more susceptible to injuries like at the growth plates. So you see that in a lot of sports. They have sort of weak links in the skeletal system where the bone is growing from the growth plates. And so then as you mature and you're no longer having the growth of the bones and in terms of your stature of those long bones, um, then you're more likely to get the injury, not at the growth plate, but another point in the bones. I would say certainly we expect to see slightly different types of injuries from different age skaters. Bone adapts to the stress you put on it. So if you have positive stress, your bones are going to get more dense and they're going to get stronger. And that's going to come from training, but not overtraining. But also what's going on nutrition, depending on hormone levels. So there's going to be a lot going on there in addition to age. How much research has there been done looking at any of the longer term impacts of this type of stress on athletes? Yeah, so in figure skating, I have not seen a lot of long-term research on skaters following skaters who you have or have not been injured over the course of the season, touching back in with them five years later, 10 years later, 15 years later, and actually accumulating a database of what health problems they may or may not have. If we're thinking musculoskeletal, I, I think one obvious thing to be interested in is do they have a higher prevalence of maybe osteoarthritis, for example. So I haven't seen that with figure skating. You have seen it in other sports where they followed a variety of athletes as well as just the general public to see the incidences of osteoarthritis different in different sports. And I would say the literature isn't overly conclusive. You do see some contradictory evidence. And then often surprisingly, not that much higher of an incidence of osteoarthritis in athletes versus non-athletes. But I think depending on what you did as a job, you have a lot of stress on your body in a job, whether it's a sitting job and it's more your neck and your wrist, or if it's uh, delivering packages and it's your back and your knees. So there's a lot of stress on the body regardless of what you're doing. So surprisingly, sometimes rate or incidences of arthritis aren't that different, but I don't think it's been done in skating. I think anecdotally, what you have in skating, you do have reports of fairly young people after skating, having had hip replacements younger than you would normally, I would say, see replacements in the population. But, you know, you're often only talking about two or three people that make the news because they are the world famous figure skaters. How that actually crosses over in terms of percent of the population, I, I, I don't know. I wanted to ask about pairs because I'm a pair skater and I know that in some ways, learning pairs elements has made me much more aware of how, how physics impacts um, my, you know, my training and the mechanics of being able to do lifts or the tension that makes some of the pair elements possible. Yeah. What kinds of things have you looked at when it comes to pairs? Yeah. So with pair skating, I've only done a couple of projects with pair skating. So it's all been more on the performance side, as opposed to thinking about the loading and the injury side. So we did a project on the split triple twist. And we collected data at the Salt Lake Olympics of not all the pairs in the Olympics, but maybe the top two flights. And really looking at how, from a, I'm going to say, sort of mechanical standpoint, just in terms of the height and the speed and the rotational velocity, the triple was different from the double. So if you were hopefully then more up and coming pair and working on getting a triple and you already had a double, what were we seeing that was sort of different? You know, is it coming in faster? Are we seeing 
um, a lot more amplitude in the throw? Are we seeing really just the rotation take off those elements? So it's much more from a coaching performance side. It is such an amazing element. And I just interviewed Kristen Moore Towers and she was talking about the work that she had to do to go into learning and sort of relearning and constantly trying to improve her twist and how tiny, tiny adjustments each day in order to try to change things because it's so such precision that's required in the timing to make it work. And so the other periscope we worked then we have looked at same type of thing on the performance side. Some of the throws um, with this sort of the same idea. Okay, throw a double to a triple throw or a triple to a quad throw, I guess, these, these days. <laughs> the same type of thing with the throws that amazes me, right? Because it's just not up to the female to set her trajectory, right? So <laughs> like anything that's a little off in what the male's doing too can totally change what the trajectory is going to be in the air. And then if you're a little off at the beginning, like you, you, there can be like no way potentially that you're going to land it because you're a little too inside or outside or leaning forward or backwards because the guy is also affecting your momentum at takeoff, not just you. And then at couple that too, the throws are often higher than just a single skater's jump. So the skater landing from the throw is having to deal with having a lot more kinetic energy. And so just much harder landing, but the female pair skaters are often quite tiny. So it's just like really, it seems very dichotomous to me that if they're having to handle landing from a huge dynamic skill, but it's the smaller person on the team, right? The male skater who's bigger and you would think, you know, could potentially handle those bigger stresses is not having come down from like the really high throws because he's doing the throwing. That sort of question of like, do you need to be tiny to be a paraskater? And the idea that, you know, okay, so to some degree, you know, having a greater height difference between the pair helps. It's also been interesting to learn how you're much, much taller than your partner. You also have to get much lower in your knees in order to be able to get the right, you know, angle to be able to do a lift. There's also ways that it can be, can make some things harder too. And that's definitely not something I had, you know, ever thought about until trying to actually learn how to do the lift and realizing that I'm 5'11 and had been so grateful to, you know, to be able to suddenly realize, oh, being tall as a skater is actually helping me in this way. I also need to have a very nice deep squat going into these things in order to be leaning too far forward. Takes a lot of strength and work to get that low and be able to hold that position and be in control. Definitely. One of the things that I'm interested in and looking at is this sort of question around body types and skaters, body image, how the restrictions that we have placed in terms of who should be a skater, who we invest in as a skater. There's also these questions around physics, some body types or proportions, you're going to be more easily able to do certain moves. Could you talk a little bit about, you know, from that mechanical perspective, how do things like body proportions or power to weight ratio impact skaters? Yeah, absolutely. So body type, it makes a huge difference. And I would agree everyone can enjoy skating, but some body types, it's going to be much more difficult to do certain skills just from a pure physics standpoint. So some body types just really could be challenged to get up to a high level. You're not going to see someone as big as Shaquille O'Neal. You'll be able to pull off some of these skills, even though he's a very strong person. It's just acrobatic skills require you to either spin or rotate, depending on what type of language you want to use, 
really fast and for objects to spin or rotate really fast so you can complete whatever you want to do two or three or four revolutions in the air smaller objects can rotate faster than larger objects i'm going to say easier that's a little unscientific to throw in the word easier and it has to do with a quantity called the moment of inertia which um is a really weird name for a property of an object in this case a figure skater it's really not too difficult to understand but the moment of inertia is a property of a figure skater. So skaters are rotating about what we would call the longitudinal axis. So just that sort of vertical axis that goes up and down from the heads to the toes. And they're always just spinning around it or rotating around it. And the moment of inertia would just be a measure of their resistance to being able to sort of gain rotational speed. So if you have something called a big moment of inertia, you have a lot of resistance. And it's going to be one, just your mass. You just have a lot of mass. It doesn't matter muscle or fat, just the actual amount of mass for this property. It doesn't matter. And then it also matters how your mass is positioned about the axis. So if you can get your mass lined up really, really tight to the axis, you don't have a very big moment of inertia, which means you don't have a lot of resistance, which means you can accelerate really fast and get rotating really fast. And so that is going to go really well with getting your mass positioned really close to the axis, like more narrow people. Um, height really shouldn't matter that much for that. It's really more breadth and width, so narrow people. But then it also matters just what your mass is. And so height just adds to your total mass. <laughs> um, so for figure skating, technically speaking, height's not probably as big an issue as it might be in gymnastics because gymnastics has tumbling skills. And so height makes a bigger difference for them because they need to get small around a different axis. Figure skaters don't have to do flipping rotations so height doesn't make as big a difference with the exception of just a taller person generally is more likely to have more total mass. In terms of like limb length, that does vary from you know person to person. So generally you think of taller people have longer limbs and shorter people have shorter limbs. But there's some variety there. You could take two people who are five three, for example, and someone might have like a really short trunk and really long legs and arms, and someone might have a longer trunk and shorter legs and arms. Um, and in skating, I think both body types could excel in that way. I think they look very different on the ice. So I mean, the artistry and the choreography would be different. And there are some advantages to having some longer limbs and there's some different disadvantages to having longer limbs from a physics standpoint. One advantage to some longer limbs would be on the jumping side. You can actually use the movement of your arms and the leg potentially that you're not jumping off of to help create both vertical velocity and your rotational momentum. So the longer limbs certainly could, could work to your advantage there, just creating that vertical velocity so you can jump higher, being there longer, and also creating rotational momentum. So once you're in the air and you like snap in, you could rotate faster. I think the disadvantage would be the strength needed to bring the longer limbs into that tight rotating position to be more. So there's a little bit of offset there, but I think you could make both work. It's going to take sort of different attributes in terms of like we were talking about sort of strength ratio or relative strength. Do you think that there are ways that we can be talking about, you know, the scientific and physics-based kind of reality of how body type impacts performance in a way that doesn't put so much risk for skaters going, you know, to the extremes in terms of things like eating disorders and the problems that we see with body image, because those are such significant harms that come to so many athletes at the elite level in skating. That's a really good question. I think that one thing that can be emphasized, so some of what I'm describing in terms of physics quantity really comes down to more 
deck shirt and like I said sort of proportions of arms to legs which you don't have as much control over from an eating perspective I mean and certainly letting skaters know that like restricting your eating to try to have like say really low percent body fat that's affecting the growth of your bones or the ability to create your muscles to work well you're not going to have effective training it's just from a health standpoint you need to be eating and not be healthy and you don't want to try to be like stopping growing height wise or something that's just like really dangerous so i think that part is a little out of hopefully a skater's control that you know their proportion are you more longer limbed or longer trunks and that type of thing but the idea i think needs that was maybe not emphasized as much as it could be would be that you do have to have strength and power to skate well but you don't necessarily have to be bulky to do that um, you can have a lot of strength and relative power without having huge bulging muscles. It's actually fairly difficult to put on a lot of muscle mass. Um, so I, I'm not sure that skaters necessarily have to be overly concerned with that if they're working with anybody who is trained and strength trained. Without some strength and power, you're not going to be able to like explode off the ice and jump high. You're not going to be able to hold your arms up because you're skating and look elegant. You're not going to be able to pull your arms in. So emphasizing that there is a lot of strength and power and that eating to fuel so you can train and even do like some strength and conditioning off the ice, it's really hard to walk off. So emphasizing that part. And so you can do that without causing any harm to really those physical properties that I was talking about because you're not going to bulk up that now makes it so that you moment of inertia has just gotten so much bigger so even though I'm talking like yes petite skaters generally can rotate better like that's in comparison to our big athletes like shot putters you know it's not a comparison to this petite athlete to that petite athlete who might be a couple pounds different so just framing it that for whatever stature that you are Yes, you want to be lean, but you also want to have your relative strength and power. So you need to eat appropriately and train appropriately to develop that. And that's not going to harm that moment of inertia. What kinds of research are happening now? I would love to hear a little bit more about some of the projects that you're working on currently or that you're particularly excited about. Believe it or not, right now we're still very slowly trying to work on getting on ice measurements of forces from skaters. There's not a lot of research out there that have measured on ice forces. I realize at this day and age, it probably seems like that should not be that technologically challenging because instrumentation and technology, just like every year, everything seems to get quadruply fast and smaller and lighter and less expensive that boom, you can just rig up a figure skating boot and measure and go at it. But it actually does seem to be remarkably challenging. I think one of the challenges is there's just not a huge professional team. It's not a huge college sport, but there's just tons of money coming in to make measurements so that we have all this data so we can try to improve people's performance or keep them from being injured or help with the equipment design. It's a fairly elite, small group of people who are operating at this level. So there's, there's not a lot of financial, I would say, incentive or finances out there to do it. So it is a sort of slow, sort of homegrown process, like when we have time, we'll work to do it. But so we did receive some funding multiple years ago from U.S. Figure Skating to work on developing boot. And we, we do have um, a boot that works. We've taken it on the ice. It's not to the level that market ready and something that people buy off the shelf. It's definitely research stage. It's still a little cumbersome. But so what I'd like to do, I have a graduate student who's a figure skater who is hoping to 
take this food as it is onto the ice right now. I'd love to find maybe like an engineering student who's also a skater who would like to maybe revamp it a little bit to bring it up with some of the technology that's changed over the last five years. So it could be smaller and lighter, a little easier to use. There is a company in town that is doing some interesting measurements with force sensors. And one of their, I'm going to say CEOs, that that's probably not exactly their title, is not a competitive level national skater, but is a was a figure skater. So she's interested in having the company go into that way. So we're sort of working on collaborating with them. It's not a priority project right now for this year, but hopefully maybe next year working with them. So really the goal is just to try to get accurate on ice measurements of forces or loading on the body without really interfering with the skater and getting reasonably quick feedback. So you don't have to like take the data into the lab and like two weeks later, find out what the forces were. So that's really where I have been working and would still like to work. And I'm hoping with the company that's in town that we might be able to sort of go off from the design we have and take a different approach to it with some of the newer technology that's available. I was curious. So you've worked with U.S. figure skating and like how much collaboration is there among um, people who are thinking and working in this field? Is it very much by country or federation or that kind of thing? Or are there international projects? I suppose you can see very much see the, like why you would want to be collaborating. But I also wonder if there are these performance implications of things, if there's a desire to keep some of this information proprietary or how does that impact your research? Most of the people that I know who are doing research are in academia. And I think there's a pretty collaborative effort there. It doesn't particularly matter what country you're in. I think people, even though it's pretty easy to connect with people over Zoom these days or Skype or whatever, I think people have traditionally been collaborating within the countries or neighboring countries. <laughs> um, so in the region, so it's just easier to work with people and without having to travel great distances to like meet in person and things like that. Maybe if the research isn't being done in academia, but it's being done by a company or federation, I, mean, I think there are more restraints on collaboration, either from the proprietary purposes, if it's a company or if it's a federation, you're wanting the research to help your athletes because you're in the process of really getting gold medals. A lot of that is not necessarily going to be published or published right away. It's going to be a lot of time. So I think it depends on who's doing the research and how, how available it is and if it's being sort of published in you know, open source journals or scholarly available journals that everyone can access worldwide or if it's really just being published within that national governing body or if it's just in-house at a organization. So I think that's a pretty wide range. Have you seen any interest from the ISU or that kind of more centralized attempts to try to coordinate? There definitely used to be a nice push around at least the Olympics every year. And uh, not from the ISU per se, but from the International Olympic Committee for sports science research. And the sports science research did not necessarily like have to take place at the Olympic Games, but there was sort of a process with every quadrennium to like apply for funding to study problems. Certainly there was a push that way. I have not seen that as much anymore. I don't know if that is necessarily a focus on using their money in different avenues. Um, so instead of necessarily directing your money towards the research side, maybe directing it straight towards athlete support services. So research indirectly supports athletes, but not necessarily directly taking care of their lodging needs or their eating needs or their health care or paying for coaches. Um, so I, I don't know why some of the programs that existed, I'm going to say maybe like 20 years ago, I don't see at least advertised and pushed as much anymore. 
We see sometimes on watching Japanese figure skating coverage that they'll have ways of measuring, um, you know, height uh, and distance in jumps or measuring the speed of skaters over the course of the program. And is that all done with multiple cameras? There are, you know, ways of using image capture technology to um, get useful information or for your purposes, it really has to be something that is built into the boot that the skater is using to measure the forces that you're looking at? I don't exactly know which technology they're using in Japan, but if you think of other sports in the US, I know more what technology they're using that are you know measuring things like how fast the athletes are going and how many miles are running or all the sorts of different variables that pop up on the screen when you watch some of the professional sports. Most of them that I know of are using cameras to do that. So they have cameras set up around the arenas that are tracking the athletes and then processing this information and, and whomever is reading and pulls it out puts on a TV for you. Um, I, so I imagine they're using a camera-based system in Japan as well for that because it seems fairly similar type calculations are being done. From the standpoint of from those camera-based systems, can you get force? The answer is, I'm going to say yes. And generally, force is not being measured directly that way. The more common way that people would put out force measurements from something like that would been to have developed algorithms from initial laboratory testing so that when you see the cameras are measuring these movement things, whether it's acceleration or velocity and height, that data is being inputted into an algorithm that's already been validated that will then spit out the force based off of data that in the lab where the movement was measured and forces were measured, and now we know the relationship between them. Whether that could be used from a research perspective of then accumulating all these forces that are now being, say, outputted from all these competitions that are doing this, that we could start, you know, tracking athletes and accumulating a nice database of how big the forces are, would probably depend on what the margin of error is for those force measurements, because that stuff does not pop on the screen, right? When I put that up, okay, so it says it's, what is it, five feet? Is that five feet plus or minus one foot? Five feet plus one is two feet? You know, that's going to make a big difference. I don't, I have not seen anybody reporting <laughs> what the variation is on these numbers. Um, my thought would be until you get a lot of data into developing the algorithms, the variability is probably pretty big. Once you have thousands and thousands of data points into the algorithms, it, you might get it down to a point where it's useful. It's been interesting to see some of this stuff pop up. You know, it's it's interesting from a spectator's perspective. Maybe it's useful for judges, though I think that's sort of a, a question of like, do judges even want to, to trying to figure out how to include that kind of quantitative data? Would it be such a can of worms that, you know, whether that's actually useful or not? It seems like some of the technology is there maybe a little further ahead of the purpose for why we're, we're using it yet. I, I think that happens a lot. I think that with a lot of wearables, you get that too. I mean, there are wearables that could be used in figure skating. I know some of the wearable shirts uh, that will monitor things heart rate, respiration, but also they have accelerometers in them. So technically you can get acceleration and then technically you can have load on the body and you can count jumps and stuff like that. I don't know. There's a lot of data on how accurate those are necessarily used for figure skating, but that can certainly be solved. But then what do you do with all that information? <laughs> Some of it seems fairly obvious what you would do with this. Some of it is just, we have technology, we can measure it here, figure it out. Last question that I had for you is just where you see the sport going in the future. Now that we've seen a successful quad axle, it definitely makes it seem like, oh, well, quintuple jumps are maybe not so far behind, whether, you know, 
debate whether that's a, you know, a good thing for this sport or not. But you know, in the spirit of people will keep trying to do more, do you think that that is something that we're likely to, to see soon? And where is the limit in terms of height and rotational speed and all of this that a human body is able to reach? Yeah, I, I absolutely think we'll see quintuple jumps without a doubt just from a pure math physics standpoint, not from the coordination and the skill the skater has to have to do it. <laughs> quintuple axle and a quintuple toe loop are virtually identical, just from number of rotations that need to be completed and all that stuff. I, I know they're very different and the skill and coordination to do them from the skater perspective is very different, but just from the pure rotation and height and that stuff, very identical. <laughs> so absolutely, if we've got someone doing a quintuple axle, which we do in competition and People who done them not in competition and haven't yet done them in competition. So there's probably technically a couple people who can do quintuple axles, not just one. We'll, we'll definitely see quintuple jumps. I wouldn't say I'd stake my life on it, but I can't imagine not <laughs> seeing it. But in terms of the limits, I mean, obviously people are still going to try to do more, but is it possible to see what would it be? A Well, obviously either a quintuple axle or a, would it be a sextuple or a hextuple? I don't know what you would call it. Um, I honestly don't think so. Again, if you're just purely thinking of the math side of it, taking out sort of the skater skill side of it, and just thinking of the dimensions of a human body in a fairly petite human body, but still want to talk about, well, you still need some strength and power and how high people can actually jump. And we have a good idea of how high people can jump. And yes, world records of vertical jump height change, but they're not changing leaps and bounds and skaters aren't necessarily near the top of them, but you could imagine it getting up a little higher, but even if they were at the top of a vertical jump world record, and then the rotation in the size of the body, it doesn't really mathematically get you to a sixth revolution <laughs> jump. <laughs> so I, unless something drastically changed about the sport, which would be things like equipment and surfaces, which get like a spring mat in gymnastics is totally different than doing gymnastics skills, not on a spring mat. So something drastic in the sport, which I really don't see coming. I think the quintuples would be where the limit is for single skaters doing jumps. You know, Paris puts a whole new dynamic in there, what they potentially could do, just because no doubt a male can throw a female skater super high in the air. And absolutely, she can rotate fast enough to do more than that. But can you land it safely? I don't know. So I, I really would have less confidence of where a line is with pair skating, um, because certainly if you didn't have to worry about landing, I won't say the sky's the limit, but there's a lot of potential there. But you do have to worry about landing. And I don't have a feel for what the female or anybody, male or female, technically could control landing coming down from like fairly high in the air and say six or seven revolution jump, which I think a male could throw a female high enough to do that just would be really concerned about if it's not into a foam pit, what would happen to the body on the way down? Yeah. I mean, that that's the cost in terms of injuries and training for trying to push those limits is, yeah. I mean, it, it brings us back to the, the beginning of our, our conversation and, you know, you're talking both the acute injuries and the overall stress that you're putting on the body. We're trying to all of that on the landing joints. I think I see pair skating having more of a quandary of where to go with that. Or maybe it's not, maybe they just are wise enough to know that you really can't handle those landings. They're a little more in control of what they're trying as opposed to in single skating. It's probably unlikely that you can jump high enough that you can't then control the landing because you're not like vaulting off things like you would be in gymnastics or something like that. Yeah. I mean, and that gets into those questions of, you know, the, the 
the rules of the sport and how much value we place on different elements that those are decisions that, you know, that we, we make. And so it's been interesting to see, you know, in pairs, maybe even the reduction in the value of quads relatively. And some of that, like that there's, mm -hmm. that's not where the boundaries are being pushed. And, you know, depending on who you talk to, that's a, you know, that's good for the sport or that's bad. That that's certainly been the, you know, the trajectory is that there's less of an incentive to push the boundaries in those ways. And so then you see, you know, people are trying to do triple, triple combinations and, you know, instead as the way to push their limits. And so it's, you see the different values. Right. We've talked about a number of different things and kind of jumped around a little bit here, but is there anything that you would like to say about the biomechanics of skating or your research that we haven't touched on so far or that you feel like would be important to emphasize? I don't think so. I mean, we've covered a lot. We've sort of covered the performance side and jumping and rotating. We've talked about stress and body and landing and injuries. And we've talked about boots and ice, body shape and size. So yeah, I think we've done a good job. And what is a good way for people who might be interested in this area to, you know, to keep up with your research or to keep up with what's, you know, happening in this field? That's a great question. So I'm not on social media, so don't get on social media to keep up with what I'm doing in the field. I do try to respond to people who email me. So if you can always email me, I'm at Ithaca College, and you can just get on their website, which is www.ithaca.edu, and find my webpage and or just my email and get a hold of me that way. And in terms of the people who are, you know, publishing data on biomechanics and skating are not doing a great job of getting that out into just, you know, stuff that everyone reads. So you really have to be a little more resourceful in searching and hop onto some search engines like PubMed or something like that to get a little more academic in your searching and read some of the academic journals. And that's where you can really find where sort of the cutting edge research and skating is. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. I hope that you get to keep plugging away at this new boot design and everything that you're working on. It'll be really interesting to see what comes from it. Well, thank you. It was a pleasure talking to you. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Dr. King. You can look at the show notes for links to her work. You can reach me with comments or suggestions for topics and people I should talk to by email at fsfuturepodcast at gmail.com or on Instagram and Twitter at fsfuturepodcast. Remember to subscribe to the Future of Figure Skating podcast on whatever platform you use and share it with your friends.